As we begin Isaiah chapter 54 tonight, we're continuing in a passage that has some of the greatest encouragement and highest glory uh, that you can find in the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon said of this particular chapter, Isaiah 54, he said, try and suck all the sweetness that you can out of this chapter while you read it, because it's filled with the sweet things from the Lord for us. Let's take a look, beginning here at verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not borne, break forth into singing and cry aloud. For you who have not travailed with child, you, uh, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your habitations. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. You know, in ancient Israel, as in much of the ancient world, there was no greater disgrace for a woman than to be barren. I shouldn't say that. It's not that there was no greater disgrace, but it was certainly a tremendous amount of shame and disgrace for a woman to be unable to bear children. And here the Lord likens captive Israel to a barren woman who can now sing. Because now more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. You see, the Babylonian captivity and exile meant more than just oppression for Israel. It meant shame and disgrace and humiliation. Isn't that just how the devil loves to work in our lives? Not only does he want to send you to hell, but he wants to rub your nose in it at the same time. And he wants to fill your life with this sense of shame and humiliation and disgrace. You know, that's not of the Lord. The Lord has much higher ground for you to walk on. And this promise that God makes to Israel in captivity is a glorious promise of release, not only from exile and captivity, but also from the shame and the disgrace and the humiliation that goes along with it. There's no reason for a believer to remain bound in the shame and the disgrace of their past sin. They can be set free from that. And if the devil just keeps trying to put it on you and put it on you and put it, well, you just give it back to him. It doesn't belong to you. It was put all on Jesus Christ. Now, this passage was quoted by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.27 in reference to the miraculous birth of those under the new covenant because what he's talking about here is miraculous birth. I mean, after all, those who were barren now bear children. He also included the phrase, more are the children, to indicate that the children of the new covenant would outnumber the children of the old covenant, which is certainly true. If you notice, the blessing is so wonderful. In verse 2 it says, enlarge the place of your tent. You know how we would put it in our modern day vernacular. We'd say, you know, it's time to add on to the house. God's going to bless you with so many children that where you live right now, it's not big enough. You know, start building that second story. Start adding on to the room because God's going to bless you so much, you need to add on to the house. This would be a particular comfort to the returning Babylonian exiles who felt themselves small in number and weak, and this promise would strengthen them. So in the first three verses, we see God comforting a discouraged Israel as if they were a woman who was barren, and he says, you're going to bear children. Now look at how he paints the picture in the next several verses, verses 4 through 6. 
He says, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, nor be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Well, if Israel would be restored like a barren woman who now bears children, she'd also be restored like a forsaken widow who is now rescued from her reproach. Again, another source of reproach and shame in Israel would be a woman whose husband left her, or even if she was left a widow, she would have no covering of a husband, no head of the home there for her. And and in that culture, it was a great disgrace. Now, the Lord compares the humiliation of Israel to the reproach of widowhood. And the Lord promises rescue from that shame. If you notice it, it's a beautiful way that the Lord does it. He says that I'll stand in the place of your husband. Look at it there, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Though Israel might have regarded themselves as forsaken and as desolate as a widow, the Lord promises to stand in the place of her husband. You just can't read that without thinking that through the centuries, many a hurting woman has taken this promise for herself. Forsaken by a husband or forsaken of a husband. They found beautiful comfort in the promise that God would be a husband to them when all others forsook them. You know, the principle is true. God will supply and meet our emotional needs and rescue us from our disgrace and shame when others forsake us. People, the Lord really is enough in this. It's not easy, but the Lord is enough. If you don't think he's enough, notice how the Lord phrases this. I love this in verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. You see, to comfort and strengthen his people, God reminds them of how glorious a Savior he is. You almost might think, well, Lord, fine, great. You're going to be my husband. Well, isn't that swell? You know, I mean, I kind of wanted the flesh and blood kind, Lord. God says, wait a minute. Do, Do you realize who I am? You realize the offer I'm making to you. First of all, I'm your maker. I'm the creator of everything. I'm the one who made you. Now, the one who made you knows you, doesn't he? You're there putting together something, fixing something mechanical or even making a recipe. You put all the ingredients in. You know what's in there. Other people might not know, but you know. God made you. He knows the ingredients. He knows what's in you. That's who it is who's offering himself as your husband. He is your maker. Not only that, he's the Lord of hosts. You remember what that phrase means? The God of heavenly armies. Wouldn't you like that guy on your side? Wouldn't you like that for your husband? A man of that kind of power, of that kind of awesome might. But not only that, he goes on and he says, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, that word for redeemer there is the Hebrew word goel. And that speaks of what is often termed as a kinsman redeemer. It speaks of someone who's a near relative who has the 
responsibility for oversight and protection over you. And God says, I'm your redeemer. Then he goes on and he says, the Holy One of Israel, and he's called the God of the whole earth. I mean, I think we've got to say that not only does God supply himself as a husband, but a pretty great husband at that, right? You know, the promise that the Lord will meet our needs when others forsake us, it doesn't leave us into some secondary bin of second best. You know, the Lord can be a greater husband than any man can be. It's something for every single woman to remember and something no married woman should forget. An earthly husband can never fulfill every need that the great heavenly husband can. The Lord makes it clear, saying here, for your maker is your husband and the Lord of hosts is his name. And he goes on and speaks of the glorious restoration of Israel. Look at verse 7. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And I think in many ways, verses 7 and 8 are God's way of looking at our trials from His perspective. Now, there's the way we look at our trials from our perspective and the way the Lord looks at them from his perspective. When we look at our trials from our perspective, they're huge and they last forever. Look at how God looks at them. Verse 7, for a mere moment I've forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy. See how God describes the trial? A mere moment, a little trial. And how do we describe it? Oh, you know, it's like the sinking of the Titanic and the (laughs) nuclear explosions and all other things tied into one. Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, it's easy for the Lord to say that my trial is easy. It's easy for the Lord to say that my trial is short. Because it's my trial, it's not his. It's easy to him. It's short to him. Like, you know, the old joke. You know the definition of minor surgery? That's surgery that they do on somebody else. You know, when it's happening to you, somehow it's not so minor anymore. Well, it might be easy for us to take that perspective, but you know, it really isn't true. When we think about it carefully, we understand if God has a perspective and we have a perspective, which perspective is eternally true? God's or ours? Well, it's God's. Beyond any doubt, beyond any dispute, it's God's. So friends, if God says that our trial is just for a moment, it's just a little trial, we have to believe him. He knows. When it measures that, it's measuring it in the light of eternity. There's also something very challenging here, a call to faith. If you notice it here in verse 7, he says, for a mere moment I have forsaken you. That's the present tense, right? Right there in the present, Israel feels forsaken. God did not really forsake them, but he's, he's identifying with their feeling, of feeling forsaken. He goes, I know you feel this way. And he goes, it's just going to last for a mere moment. But notice what he says next. But with great mercies, I will gather you. That's in the future tense, isn't it? 
God's calling them to trust in his future mercies in the midst of a present trial. That's not always easy to do, is it? It's rarely easy to do. That's what God calls us to do, to set our hope and our trust in the Lord, even though we feel forsaken at the moment. When we feel tried and forsaken, we should recognize that it's just for a moment, but an everlasting blessing is coming. Look at verse 8. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. Friends, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, speaking of our light affliction, which God will transform into a far more exceeding weight of glory. That's speaking from an eternal perspective. And that's a perspective the prophet Isaiah has here. So he goes on with the words of comfort. Look at verse 9. But this is like the waters of Noah to me, for I have sworn, or excuse me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Just as God promised that the floodwaters of Noah's day would not cover the earth forever, so his anger will recede from Israel. I mean, don't you feel sometimes like the the Lord's disciplining work or the trial that you're in, that it's covered you over like a flood, and it's like the whole world is flooded over. God looks at you and goes, hey, get a grip. Even the waters in Noah's days receded. This trial's going to recede too. And its perfect work will take place in your life. What's even more striking in here in verses 9 and 10, if you take a look, he says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Now, waters recede back, right? Mountains don't. Hills don't. But God says, even if they do, then my kindness will not depart from you. God doesn't say, my kindness is as steadfast as the mountains. That would be good enough, right? I mean, I could latch onto that promise. But God says, I'll do you better than that. My kindness is more enduring to you than the mountains themselves. So I think all we need to do is just make a mental note. You know, when we go out, and we see the hills surrounding Simi Valley. When you see the mountains off in the distance, say, they're still there. God's kindness must still be there. Because even if they passed away, God's kindness would still be there. Covenant of peace is more sure than that. Look at it here, verse 11. Oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me, Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. This is beautiful. I love how in verse 11 he speaks and says, To you, afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. You know, God cares about the afflicted one. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're writing in the margin of your Bible right now, me, right next to where it says afflicted one. Maybe you feel that's you. 
Maybe you feel you're the one who is tossed with tempest. You just see that. Don't you see the little tiny boat out there on the midst of a raging sea just being thrown about everywhere? You feel like, that's me. That's that little boat. I'm that boat. I'm tossed with the tempest. And you say, well, afflicted, tossed with tempest. How about the third one in verse 11? And not comforted. Maybe that's what's kind of got you peeved tonight. You know, you're afflicted, and you say, well, I could take it, but where's my comfort? I'm not comforted. I'm tossed by the tempest. Where's my comfort? I'm not comforted. I can take it when I'm comforted, but I'm not comforted. I'm afflicted, I'm tossed, and I'm not comforted. First thing you need to know is that the Lord cares about you. I mean, he's speaking to you, isn't he? It doesn't say something like this. Oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Get out of here, you whining complainer. doesn't say that. God loves you. He cares about you. No, the Lord has more patience, more endurance with us than any man ever could have. God loves us. And, and maybe you are a big whining complainer before the Lord tonight. Just maybe you're in that place. You know, the Lord still loves you. Everybody else might be really annoyed with you, but God loves you. He does, and he wants to comfort you. He wants to give you a sense of security and assurance. He loves you. He cares about you. It's easy for us in that kind of place to believe that God doesn't care, but he does care. And he gives precious promises to give us strength. So notice the first thing he says. He says in verse 11 there, I'll lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. Then he goes on and talks about rubies and crystal. And God will lavish riches upon the hurting and the afflicted. You know, when you feel afflicted and tossed and not comforted, you feel poor, don't you? I mean, you might have a million dollars in the bank, but you feel poor, right? What good is it? You got all this money, all this wealth, all these assets, all this property. But when you feel afflicted and tossed and not comforted, it's like you have nothing. God says, I'll make you rich. I'll make that afflicted person feel rich. Now, when you feel the security and the comfort and the blessing of God, does it really matter how much money you have in the bank? You're rich no matter what the the bank account says. Then here's the next promise that he makes. See there in verse 13. All your children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. When you're afflicted and tossed and not comforted, you feel bad not just for yourself, but also for your children. And God gives precious assurance, not only for us, but he also quiets our fears for our children. And then he goes on, he says, you're going to find protection in me. Did you notice there in verse 14? In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. Then he goes on in verse 15. He says, whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. God promises those who are afflicted and tossed and not comforted. He says, you're going to find protection and security in me. Man, that's a big promise, Lord. Can you you elaborate on that? God says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 16. Behold, I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. 
This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. The sovereign God, the God who created the blacksmith, who created the spoiler to destroy, he also has the power to protect. He can promise that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Whatever weapon is raised against God's people is destined to be destroyed itself. God will ultimately even protect his people from criticism. Did you notice there? Every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. A beautiful promise that the Lord will not allow the weapon formed against his servants to prosper. Now God has different ways of doing that. One way that he does it is he may take the weapon out of the hand of your enemy, right? I mean, there the enemy has the weapon raised against you and God just takes it out of his hand. That weapon didn't prosper, did it? But then there's other ways that God allows it to happen. Sometimes God allows that weapon to stay in the enemy's hand and he allows it to come crashing down upon you. And then God uses that for good. He uses it for blessing in your life. And that weapon of your enemy, that sword, if you will, suddenly it becomes like a, like a builder's trowel to build something good in your life. That weapon didn't prosper in the intention that they had for it, did it? God used it in a glorious, different way. He transformed the violent sword into a trowel for building his kingdom. The weapon won't prosper. Even every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. Sometimes that hurts worse than anything, right? You say, bring out the weapons. It's those words that people say. That's what really cuts me. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me. Boy, that's one of the biggest lies we've ever put upon our children, isn't it? Words can hurt worse than a wound. Friends, we can trust even in that in the Lord's triumph. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the more accusers, the more acquittals. The more slander, the more honor. So the enemy may slander us as much as he pleases. Because the Lord will just vindicate you. The more your enemies slander, well, the more the Lord will vindicate you. I want you to notice something interesting at the end of verse 17 there, that this is not a blanket promise for every churchgoer. The Lord specifically says, look at it there at the end of verse 17, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. So let me ask you, are you a servant of the Lord? Then you can rest easy in his promised protection. The Lord also says that this is a promise for those whose, look at it, verse 17, whose righteousness is from me, from the Lord himself, and not from themselves. When a person understands that their righteousness is really from the Lord, they're much more comfortable in letting the Lord protect their righteousness. So God isn't done talking about his protection and blessing. The same kind of thought carries on into chapter 55, where we read, beginning at verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Isn't it striking how that chapter begins? At least in the New King James Version. That's the only place that that particular Hebrew word is ever translated, ho, anywhere else. 
It's a call, isn't it? The prophet calls out. The Lord himself calls out loud and clear to everyone who can hear. It's an important announcement. And therefore, it's prefaced with a unique call. Ho! This this is a, a short but significant appeal. It's the condescension of God. I mean, God is acting like a street salesman here. You know, hey, hey, here it is. Come on over here. Look at this. Look at this. I said, God, this is beneath you. Come on now. You know, just just sit there behind your shop counter. And the people who want to come to you, they'll come to you. Relax. God says, no, I love them too much. I got to go out there and get them. I'm going to call them to come in. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come here. Come to me. God wants to get our attention. He lowers himself, if you will, to cry out, ho, to foolish and ungrateful men. And then who's the invitation given to? Look at there, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's an invitation to everyone, isn't it? Well, no, not really. It's not an invitation to everyone. It's an invitation to everyone who thirsts. Here's God, you know, on, on the street crying, ho, everyone who thirsts. And maybe many, many of the people who walk by, I'm not thirsty, I'm not thirsty, I'm not thirsty. I don't need that. But there's, some, there's some who there are thirsty. There's some who have a dryness in soul, and they say, I am thirsty, I, I need something. And it's only those who will thirst, who will come to the waters. And if we're not thirsty for what the Lord can give us, then we'll never come to His waters. I wonder if Jesus didn't have this passage from Isaiah in mind when he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's in John 7, 37. You say, well, come, but what, what do I need to buy this for? You know, a bottle of Evian isn't cheap. What's this cost? Notice here, verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Those who do thirst and answer the Lord's invitation, you don't need to bring money. Your money won't do you any good. You can simply bring their trust and faith and receive what God has to give you. Matter of fact, it's all free. Look at the menu here in verses 1 and 2. You got, uh, come uh, buy wine and milk, and and then there's water and and bread there in verse 2, and all these different things. It's all free. Friends, let me point that again. It's all free. It isn't just that the entrance into the Christian life is free, and then you have to be charged to advance in the Christian life. That's the way some people conceive of it, don't they? You know, okay, you get in for free, but then to make progress, you better start shelling out the money. No, it's all free. Our growth is just as much a gift of grace as our salvation. You can't drink freely of the water and then pay for the wine. God says, no, no, here, it's all free, come. Matter of fact, you can spend a lot of money for things that do not satisfy. Did you see that in verse 2? Why do you spend your money for what's not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? God, in this invitation, asks his people to ask themselves, why am I spending money for what can't satisfy? I don't know if there's a more relevant question to ask at the beginning of the 21st century in, in the United States of America. Why are you spending your money on things that can't satisfy? We're very good at that, aren't we? In light of all the things that we pour our money and our time and our effort into, things that can never satisfy us the way that the Lord can. I mean, look at it. There's, there's the guy with the, you know, 
He got the, the, the big car and the, and the cell phone, you know, permanently attached to his ear. And he digs it because when he drives up in that big car and he jumps out in the fancy suit and the cell phone on there all the time, people know that guy's important, isn't he? Wow, he's a player. Man, he's successful. You know, it cost that guy a lot of money, right? That car didn't come cheap. That cellular phone bill isn't cheap. And that suit that he bought, man, that's not off the rack. That guy spent a lot of money to achieve that satisfaction of heart, or at least to seek it, so that people would think he's important in something. Man, I can get that satisfaction of heart for nothing from Jesus Christ. That assurance that I am somebody, that he loves me, that I'm precious, and that I'm cherished. Do you realize that? The same feeling that guy has inside. No, I'm not even going to say it's the same feeling. A much better feeling than the guy has when he gets out of the car and talks on the phone and dressed in the suit and everybody goes, wow, you can have a much better feeling for nothing from Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? So this is what the Lord promises. Now, if you notice here, at the end of verse 2, it's something very instructive for us. He says, why do you spend your money for what's not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. You know, I think the last half of verse 2 is an excellent little guideline on how to profit from being under the word of God. It's a three-step process there. First of all, listen diligently. The satisfaction that God promises doesn't come to those who don't listen. And only you got to listen, but listen diligently. You know, it takes time, it takes attention, it takes effort to listen diligently, and some people aren't willing to do it. But if you will sit down and listen diligently to the Lord, He'll satisfy your soul. Next, what do you got to do? You have to eat what is good. Now, this requires some discernment, doesn't it? You got to choose what is good and eat it. A lot of people just simply eat whatever spiritual meal is set before them. They don't even care if it's good or not. Just whatever's being served, I'll eat it. I'll take it. Whatever book, whatever preacher, whatever thing, they'll just take it without any consideration. No, he says, no, eat what is good. That's what's going to satisfy your soul. And finally, look at the third aspect there in verse 2. It says, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. You know what I think the critical word is there is let. You've got to let your soul delight itself in abundance. You know, some people just won't do it. They just won't let their soul delight itself in abundance. There it is, abundance everywhere. And they won't let their soul delight itself in it. Even when we listen, even when we eat what is good, you must still let your soul delight itself in abundance. You know, you can sit down at a great spiritual meal, but by your stubborn or bad attitude, Simply refuse to let your soul delight itself in abundance. Isn't that funny how sometimes people come and, you know, there's a meal served and all that. No, it doesn't do them any good. I'd ask, are you letting your soul delight itself in abundance? Are you, first of all, listening diligently? Secondly, are you eating what's good? And thirdly, are you letting your soul delight itself in abundance? Now, he continues along in the same kind of thought. Look at here, verse 3. He says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. The thought is carrying over here from the idea of let your soul delight itself in abundance. 
Whoever genuinely is going to feast off of the word of God must consciously incline their ear towards what God will say. You know, bend your ear. You remember those old commercials, right? The E.F. Hutton commercials. Somebody recently made a mention of them in a message here. And they, they were talking about, you know, well, when, you know, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And, you know, the conversation's going, somebody makes a mention of some stock brokerage firm, and everybody stops, and they're all inclining their ear. They're all bending over to listen. God says, you do that to me. You bend my way to listen to me. You incline your ear towards me. And doesn't this explain why two people can listen to the same message, one of them benefits and one of them doesn't? One of them just doesn't incline their ear. They don't bend over to hear what God will have to say. Oftentimes the one who did not benefit simply did not incline their ear to the Lord. Notice this. Here's the benefit. Hear and your soul shall live. God will give life to your soul through his word if you'll listen diligently Eat what is good, let your soul delight itself in abundance, and incline your ear towards it. Now, look at the payoff here, verse 3 in the middle of it. It says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified himself, or glorified you. Now, for the one who will listen to the Lord, God promises a covenant. From Isaiah's perspective, this covenant is still in the future because he says, I will make, and the covenant is also characterized by the sure mercies of David. You know, God showed a lot of mercy to David, didn't he? Not only by sparing his life when he was guilty of murder and adultery, but also in blessing and preserving and guiding David every day of his life. God promises the same mercy to us that he showed to David if we'll listen to him. That's blessing indeed. And by the way, notice what it says here in verse 3. It says, the sure mercies of David. They never stop. God has never stopped showing mercy to King David. God never gave up on David, never stopped showing him mercy, and you can count on God's promise when he promises you the sure mercies of David. I find this remarkable because when you take a look at it there in verse 3, and it says, the sure mercies of David, and then it says in verse 4, I have given him as a witness to the people. We say, well, who's the him? To me, the him is David, right? You're surprised how many commentators have a very difficult time with that. They say, well, no, the him is Jeremiah. The him is this or that person. Or a commentator would say, the him is Jesus. Friends, I think it's David. And I'll explain to you why in a moment here. But first of all, you've got to say, I think it's the most natural reading of the text, right? Who's the last person mentioned in verse 3? So when it says him, it's referring back to him of verse 3. I have given him as a witness to the people. Now, what freaks people out about this is they say, wait a minute, Isaiah's day, David had been dead for hundreds of years. Well, that's okay. He's not dead with the Lord. He's alive unto God. You see, God promises the blessing of good and wise leadership as a part of his sure mercies. 
God gave David and his remarkable leadership as a gift to Israel. And God promises that he'll keep giving this gift according to the pattern shown in David. So you could say there's a spiritual aspect of this promise. That God says, I'm going to give you good and wise leaders. Leaders like David. Look at verse 4. As a witness to the people. In what way was David a witness to the people? Well, you know what? David had a real relationship with God, right? A real experience with God. That's what a witness is, right? A witness is somebody who's experienced something and then talks about it. Now, let's say that there's a traffic accident five miles away from here that's happening right now as I speak. I honestly doubt that anybody in this room is going to be called as a witness to that trial, right? Because none of us experienced anything about the accident. But... If you were there, if you experienced it, then you might be called as a witness. David had a real experience of the Lord. And so he was a witness to the people. Now notice he was a witness to the people, not of the people. He didn't witness of the people. He witnessed of God, but he bore that witness to the people. Verse 4, I begin as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. David was a leader for Israel, leading them spiritually and politically and militarily. He led both by his godly example and his shepherd's heart. He was a leader and a commander for the people. Not a leader and a commander of the people. You know, it's a lot easier to be a leader of people than a leader for people. God says, no, he's a leader of the people. Excuse me, he's a leader for the people, leading with a shepherd's heart that genuinely desires God's best for the people. I've got to pause here before we talk about David being a commander, which is really just kind of another way of saying that he's a leader. But, but isn't it mind-blowing that David is used here as God's prototype for a leader? You know, God says, here's the kind of leaders I want to give you, just like David. A, a, a witness, a leader, a commander, just like David. Because when you take the sugar coating off the life of David, in a lot of ways, David's reign as king was very troubled. He came to the throne of Israel through a lot of struggle and difficulty. He slipped into terrible scandal marked by murder and adultery. There was incest, rape, and murder among his own children as they lived in the palace. And his reign was marred by an ugly civil war in which his own son almost killed and deposed him. You know, that's not exactly a marvelously successful reign. Yet David is here lifted up as a wonderful leader of God's people. It shows that David's heart after God meant more than outward success, comfort, and ease. You know what else it shows? It also shows that God's best and most effective don't necessarily have it easy. Here David is the prototype. Now, These prophecies are fulfilled spiritually when God gives wonderful, David-like leadership to his people. But you know when this prophecy is going to be fulfilled ultimately? In the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, are you aware that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign over planet Earth for a thousand years? That's the millennium celebration I'm looking forward to. For a thousand years, Jesus is going to rule and reign on this earth. He's going to be the king of all this earth. But he's also going to rule and reign with his people. 
And the Bible gives us reason to believe that God's people, as they rule with Jesus over the millennial earth, they'll be entrusted with geographical regions according to their faithfulness. In one of the parables Jesus spoke that had reference to this, he spoke about people being rewarded with cities. I believe in the millennial earth, according to our faithfulness, God will reward us with administrative oversight over areas of the millennial earth. I'm pressing for Hawaii right now myself. <laughs> Doesn't have to be a big place, you know, just a nice portion of it there, you know. So we'll have that, that rulership with Jesus. So you know who's going to be the king of Israel in the millennial earth? David. Because Isaiah says it? Well, partially. But how about this? Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. Listen to this. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Sounds pretty plain to me, right? In Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 25, the Lord promises this. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then they will dwell in the land that I've given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. That sounds pretty plain to me. Doesn't it sound plain to you? So I don't feel like you have to say, well, he's really talking about Jeremiah. He's really talking about Jesus as the Messiah. I think he's talking about David. Verse 4, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Now notice it here in verse 5, Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Is this addressed to Israel or to David or as the leader and commander of God's people? I say, why not both? The world will flock to Israel during the millennial earth. And why? Because the Lord has lifted him up. Verse 6. Here's another invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Don't you love the sense of urgency in verse 7? Seek the Lord while he may be found. You say, well, wait a minute, is God going to go into hiding? What, I mean, is God only open for business certain hours? No. God's open for business all the time. But your heart isn't open to the Lord all the time. Seek the Lord while he may be found speaks about the condition of your heart, not about God's availability. God's available all the time. It isn't that God is hidden and can only be found now. It's that he can only be found when our hearts are inclined to look for him. And that inclination itself is a gift from God. So what do we do? We seek him while he may be found. We call upon him while he's near. And what does he say? Let the wicked forsake his way. The prophet impresses the need for repentance among God's people. Forsake your way. Forsake your thoughts. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And what's the promise? Look, there isn't it great, and he will have mercy on him. Friends, I can promise it with all the authority of the word of God. 
You turn to the Lord and you will find mercy. It says it right there. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Imagine the prodigal son returning to his father, fearful that his father was going to take him by the scruff of the neck and beat him around the head and kick him around a little bit and say, There! No. Prodigal might have been afraid of that. Father had mercy on him. Mercy. That's what God is rich in towards those who come. Friends, the problem is never that we would turn to the Lord and he would reject us. No. The problem is that we fail to return to the Lord. Because when, he, when we do, he receives us with mercy. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor Are your ways my ways, says the Lord? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Whoa. Isn't that marvelous? Do you understand that God does not think the way we do? We get into a lot of trouble when we expect that God would think the way we do. Now, because we're made in the image of God... We can relate to God's thoughts. It's not like God and man speak in different languages, so to speak. No, we speak the same language, just that God's vocabulary is infinitely greater than ours. We can relate to God's thoughts, but we can't master them. But it's not just his thoughts, it's also his ways. Did you notice that in verses 8 and 9? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. God doesn't act the way we do. He does things his ways. And his ways are often not our ways. We get into a lot of trouble when we expect that God should act the way we do. It's been said that God created man in his image, and man's been trying to return the favor ever since. (laughs) And we do that, don't we? Don't we try to create God in our own image? Consciously or unconsciously, we go, Well, you know, if I were God, then let's just stop and get back to the most elementary lesson in theology. There's a sovereign, omnipotent God enthroned in the heavens, and you're not him. His thoughts are above your thoughts. His ways are above your ways. So how far is the distance between God's thoughts and ours? Maybe it's like we're dolphins and God's a human. You know, maybe it's that kind of difference. Dolphins seem to have some kind of speech. They're intelligent, highly trainable. You know, maybe there's a difference, right? There's a distance, but maybe it's not so great. No, look at verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. All right, heaven and earth, the distance between those two. That's the distance and the difference between God's thoughts and our thoughts. Now, gloriously, in Jesus Christ, heaven has come down to earth. And we can have our thoughts and our ways transformed to be more like God's ways and God's thoughts. This is what it means to be conformed into the image of his son. Now, friends, the distance will never be closed. Even when we're in eternity, God will still be God and we'll still be human. But God will always be God. We will always be human. 
when our salvation is complete and we are united with the Lord in glory, the distance will be as close as possible. Won't it make so many things so much better? Our understanding, our worship, our adoration. Now look at here, verse 10, the glorious operation of God's work. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The Lord uses here the figure of the water cycle to illustrate the operation of his word and to emphasize the essential principle that his word shall not return to him void, but it will accomplish what he pleases. Now think about it. Rain and snow come down from heaven, right? And indeed, they go back up to heaven, don't they? But not without accomplishing the purpose that God intended for them. God has a purpose for the rain, to water the earth, to, as he says here, look at it there in verse 10 and 11, that it may bring forth and bud and may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Right? God has a purpose for the rain and the snow. And it comes down, accomplishes its purpose, then it gets evaporated back up into heaven into the water cycle and it comes down again as rain. Now, even so, God's word, when he sends it down from heaven, it does not return to him void or empty. Instead, it always fulfills his purpose on earth. You know what this basically means? Is that God is not just all talk. When he talks, his words accomplish his intended purpose. The word of the Lord has power. It never fails in his intended purpose. It always accomplishes what he sets out for it to accomplish. Now, if you want to see the picture here, again, he says that it may bring forth and bud, that may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The, the use of these pictures illustrates the principle that the operation of God's word brings forth fruit. And the fruit has a lot of different applications, doesn't it? I mean, the same grain that gives seed to the sower gives bread to the eater. And so God's work of his word, it's varied in its applications. It always accomplishes, just as he says there in verse 11, but it shall accomplish what I please. Did you know God's word has something to accomplish? God doesn't speak just to hear himself talk. His word isn't empty. It isn't lacking in power. And God's word has a purpose. He didn't speak in unfathomable mysteries just to blow our minds or to confuse us or or to leave things up to any number of possible interpretations. When God speaks, he speaks to accomplish a purpose. How many times have you heard it? Well, that's your interpretation. You know what the person is implying by that? They're implying you have your interpretation and you have your interpretation, you have your interpretation, you have your interpretation, and I have my interpretation, who's to say who's right, so everybody just has their own interpretation. You know what they're saying? When they say that, they say that God had no purpose in the giving of his word. None. There's no purpose behind it. He just gave it so that we could hear some nice words, and everybody just assigns their own meaning to it. Friends, that's not a purpose at all. God has a purpose to accomplish with his word. And he promises, look at it there, 
that it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word doesn't just barely get the job done. It shall prosper in the purpose God has for it. It's rich and full of life. God's word always succeeds and it always fulfills his purpose. Now, we can rejoice in that. That even the smallest word of God will bear fruit. I remember hearing a glorious story. Again, Charles Spurgeon, he's they're going to speak at a new hall, a new place. And he wanted to go and test the acoustics of the place. Because, you know, in that day, they didn't have microphones and PA systems and all that. He's going to speak to thousands of people. He wanted to get an idea of the acoustics so he'd know how to measure his voice through the, through the sermon. And so he got up on the stage into an empty arena. And just to try out his voice, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Later on, he found out that there was a workman there fixing some of the seats. He was even scrunched down behind the seats so he couldn't be seen. He came to Charles Spurgeon later and he said, I heard you say that word. And my heart was so convicted that I gave my life to Jesus Christ right then. Can you believe that? Saved by a sound check. Now, this does not mean that it doesn't matter how God's word is presented. Some people take it like that. Sometimes a terrible sermon, and I know I've preached some of them, sometimes a terrible sermon has been excused by saying God's word doesn't return void. Now, the principle is clear and true from this passage of Isaiah. But friends... By the preacher's poor preparation, by the preacher's poor presentation or preaching, there's been little of God's word put forth. The preacher can ignore or dilute or obscure God's word so that a little bit of it goes forth. Now, the little bit that goes forth will bear fruit, right? Always. But believe me, we can do our best to make sure that just a little bit goes forth. In those kind of situations, it'd be a lot better if the guy just got up and read. Just read the scriptures. You know that won't return void. So friends, when little goes forth, that little will succeed. But how much better if more of the whole counsel of God goes forth to succeed? Let's wrap it up here in verses 12 through 13. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You know, this chapter is all about restoration. And all about restoration based on the word of God, isn't it? When he says, come to the waters, come by and eat, he's talking about feasting on the word. When he talks about seeking the Lord, he's talking about seeking him in his word. When he's talking about the thoughts of the Lord, he's talking about the reflected in the word. He's talking about the word going forth and not returning void. And the whole fruit of this is to go out with joy and be led out with peace. When God's people turn to him and listen to him and his word does his work in them, joy and peace are always the result. And the joy and peace is so great, The mountains and the hills, the trees, they sing along too. They clap right along. 
Clapping to the song is biblical, friends. Did you see it there? The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Sometimes I think the trees of the field have more rhythm than many of us. But friends, they're going to clap their hands. We may as well too. Where there before there was barrenness and reminders of the curse, like the thorn. Did you see it there? He says there, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. No, now there's beautiful and useful trees. The picture is clear. In his glorious work of restoration, God takes away the barren and the cursed, and he brings forth beauty and fruit. And when the Lord restores, the work is done for his name and for his glory. Did you see it there in verse 13? It shall be to the Lord for a name. Not a name for you, not a name for me, but to the Lord. The work is secure. It's an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That's how enduring the word and the work of the Lord is. Well, let's just pray and ask that the Lord bears fruit in our lives through his word tonight. Father, you made a promise here that your word would not return to you void without accomplishing the purpose that you have for it under heaven. So, Lord God, we just yield our lives to you tonight and say accomplish every good work that you want to do, every purpose that you've occasioned under heaven for your word to accomplish. Do it in us and through us tonight, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.